0: I had no idea what that was all about. (laughs) Are we done? Can I I start? Okay. (laughs) Susie, thank you so much for that update. That was beautiful, and I'm so encouraged. I've I've, I've had the privilege of going over to South Sudan um, twice. It's been a long time since I've been there, but just to see the amazing changes that have taken place in the interim, the times, that I've been there. I mean, I can just, I can vouch, having been on, on the ground over there, I can vouch for the, for, for the work of this ministry, the veracity of the need, and really encourage you to support it if you're, if you're inclined or able to do so. So, uh, real quick. Father, we just ask you to, to be with us here as we, as we present ourselves before your word, and we pray, Lord, that you by your spirit will do that work that only you can do. Uh, help our minds and our hearts connect with what it is that we we read and see here help us to be drawn into this narrative so that our lives are shaped by it we just put ourselves into your hands father as we look at your word and we pray this in jesus name amen all right well this morning guys we're going to be coming back to our study in the gospel of john um and if you'd like to follow along if you want to go over to john chapter 13 please we're beginning the final section of this gospel. Uh, so we've been moving right along through it. It may not feel like we've been moving along through it to you, but it, it is. We have been. Uh, the, if you remember the, the breakdown, uh, the structure of this book, uh, it's on the back of your bulletin too, if you're not able to see this. Um, it's divided up as Two different works. It's divided up as the book of signs and the book of glory. And in between, like, well, there's a prologue and there's an epilogue. And in between chapters 11 and 12, we have this interlude, the preparation for glory, which we finished up last week. Um, so the book of glory then begins in chapters 13 through 20. And this is where God's reign on earth is inaugurated. God's kingdom is established here and is moving towards its climax, and, and uh, Jesus it takes his throne. Now, it happens to be a cross, but this is what the book of glory is all about. See, that's the whole thing about God's kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. We've talked about that over and over again. The reality is is that it's right side up. We live in the upside down. That's why it's so foreign and confusing to us. But the book of signs... As we've concluded, it was full of recorded miracles that Jesus did, and his explanation of those signs to those that were around him. It it had a lot of uh, it, it recorded. A lot of times where Jesus was addressing the crowds, all of the various peoples that were following him during that time. And last week, as Janelle talked about, we read Jesus's final discourse with the crowds, final the words that he says on a public setting. From this point on. Jesus is going to be talking exclusively with his close disciples, the 12 that have been following him and, and more. Uh, so, chapters 13 through 17 contain Jesus' farewell speech to his disciples as well as his high priestly prayer for his disciples. And our passage today is setting that scene, just so you kind of know where we're at here. Um, we're down to the final hours in the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. But as as with everything in John's gospel, this is not to be read as just a straightforward biography. Uh, John isn't just chronicling the events of Jesus' life and teachings or anything. This is meant to instruct us about Jesus. At the end of John's gospel, he explains. He's written this whole thing so that we would believe in jesus and so everything that's taking place here is meant to inform us about jesus but even more so is meant to inform us about god reveal something to us about god because remember we've said over and over again through this that thematically what john is trying to get across to us is that if we want to know what god is like where do we look those of you who've been here where do we look if we want to know what god is like We look at Jesus if we want to know what God is up to. We look at what Jesus did if we want to know God's heart towards humanity. We look at how Jesus responded to people and on and on and on. So anything that that John brings up in this story isn't just meant to inform us historically about these events. They're meant to teach us something, to reveal something. And our passage today is no different. Jesus is going to do something that becomes sort of a living parable, revealing to us the motives and the basis for God's redeeming work in this world, for the invasion uh, of God's kingdom. And, And it also reveals, then, God's purpose for us as participants in this kingdom. We'll unpack this as we go. So if you're there in John chapter 13, we're going to begin reading with verse 1. It says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. All right, we're going to stop here for a moment. This is John's account of the night of Jesus' arrest. It's completely different from the synoptic gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John doesn't describe the institution of the Last Supper. It's possible that John assumes that everybody already knows those details, those stories that have been circulating. the church likely, if this was written when we think it was, the church has likely existed for about 50 years at this point. So he already knew the familiarity we would have with that. And so instead of going over what happened with the bread and cup, John gives us details that the other Gospels didn't give us. John tells us what Jesus did and said between the synoptic details so verses 1 and 3 tell us what jesus knew he knew it says that his hour had come that is that the events of his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension were at hand the end of his earthly ministry was at hand and he knows that the father has put all things in his hands that means that he came from God. He's heading back to God's realm, and he has the full divine authority over everything. That's what John is communicating in this gospel. This is big stuff. This is, this is big stuff for Jesus to know all of a sudden. I don't know if it's all of a sudden. I mean, did he know it all along? It, you know, it's not indicated. I'm going to leave it for the academics to kind of arm wrestle over that to figure that part out. But the point is, Jesus knew where he was from. He was from God's realm. And he knew what he was doing. He was establishing God's reign and rule on this earth. And he knew where he was going. He was going back to God's realm. But this section isn't just about what Jesus knows. What is his focus in light of this knowledge? This is fascinating stuff to me. What's, what's his focus on? He's, he's aware. He's from God's realm. He has all authority over all things. Is he getting all depressed and sulking because his you know his life is not going the way he kind of wanted it to, and he's been trying to do good, and now he's going to get killed for it? Is he is he stewing over Judas's betrayal? That Judas, because John indicates that, that that's underway. Is he trying to figure a way out of his troubles? Like what could I do to escape this? Is he cursing the human race for being stupid? No, astonishingly, his focus is on the love that he has for his disciples, how he loved them all through his ministry. He loved them to the full extent. And suddenly everything comes into this sharpened focus in John's gospel. All of these threads have been leading us here. And we see what's behind God's reign on earth. God's established rule over his creation. We see here that God's love for humanity is at the heart of the gospel, the gospel being the good news of God's kingdom. Everything falls into place in this drama. Jesus is about to be exalted in glory, albeit that glory is a cross. And, and what, what keeps Jesus steady on the course that he's had set for him is his love for his disciples. We could expand that. His love For humanity. And in case you think that I overemphasize God's love too much, uh, love is going to be an important theme in what we're going to be reading. So like if it irritates anyone here that, you know, we keep talking about God's love, buckle up because it's Because it's an important theme through chapters 13 through 17. The word, listen, the word occurs 31 times in these five chapters in Jesus' discourse and prayer for his disciples. You're telling me there's not a message in that? I'm telling you. And listen again. I'll qualify. When we talk about love, I know that on a cultural level the word becomes ambiguous, largely often associated with sexuality and things like that. We're not talking We're talking about God's redemptive love here. That sacrificial, self-sacrificial, redemptive love that draws out what's best, that rehumanizes us, that elevates us and lifts us up back into the position of being image-bearers of God. That's the love that's represented in this. God's heart is love towards us. This is what God is like. This is John's message to us. The image that John sets up here is unthinkable as well. Jesus knows who he is. All things have been put in his hands, meaning his authority is all-encompassing and above every other authority that could be conceived of. It is unrivaled power. And from that position of unrivaled power, what he takes into his hands are not symbols of authority like a scepter or a crown. What he takes into his hands are his disciples' dirty feet. Try to imagine this scene. You know, it's hard to know for sure how this all plays out. Um, I'm persuaded to think that this happened just before the Passover meal during the time of the ceremonial washing of hands. You always have to wash your hands before eating bread. So while everyone's doing this ritual of you know, pouring water on their hands, uh, Jesus quietly gets up and gets a water basin and some water, and nobody thinks anything of that because, you know, that's part of the ritual. That's what you would be doing. And because people are focused on their own hands and making sure that they're doing these procedures correctly, nobody has noticed that Jesus stripped down to his underwear and wrapped a towel around to his waist, And that would have been very unusual. I mean, look, you know, remember, they're reclining at a triclinium. So their feet aren't under a table like they would be uh, uh, for us. But they're stretched out behind them. So maybe the first notice that they have of what's going on, what Jesus is doing, is when the first disciple is getting his feet washed. He's like, hey, what's good? Oh, Jesus, uh, hey. How would you feel in that moment? I mean, seriously, I have thought about it. How would you feel if you're at a dinner party and your boss suddenly strips down to his underwear and starts washing your feet? (laughs) Granted, that would be the basis for a lawsuit in our society currently. But listen, what's happening in this situation is not a cultural norm. 'Cause sometimes we have a tendency to look at these things and think, well, that's just the way the ancients were, they were all weird. But but this was just as awkward and scandalous in that setting as it would be in our setting right now. I mean, sure people would get their feet washed because of you know the situation of, of how they were living at the time and everything, but but you know, if you were invited to somebody's house, you would wash your own feet. Nobody's washing your feet for you. In fact, from what we understand, only Gentile servants ever did something like this. Jewish servants were not required to, to wash feet because of the terrible insult that was associated with it. But, you know, Within that, that region and that culture, the feet were and still are to this day considered the dirtiest part of a person, the thing that's unclean, the place most offensive on the human body. And here is Jesus taking the lowest position he could possibly take, demonstrating his selfless love for his disciples. And it all flows out from Jesus' knowing who he is and the authority that he has. Man. In in, in Philippians 2, Paul Paul expounds on how, how God's heart is revealed in Christ, saying that he was equal with God, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. So this this act of washing the disciples feet was like a living parable that 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 it was about him taking on this nature of a servant, being obedient even unto death on a cross for us. All of it, part and parcel together, this, this self-sacrificial love represented in this. And do you know what else strikes me in this? How intimate it is. One writer talked about what it must have been like to have the breath of God on your shins as Jesus is washing your feet. This was not like, you know, I love you tagged on at the end of a card or a heart emoji in a text or, or something. This is a love that invades our space, a love that we can't control. That's God's heart towards us. That's how God feels towards you. It's the demonstration of his motives. He loves us, and in quiet, humble power, he is invading our lives. So Jesus is moving from disciple to disciple. He's washing their feet. It's kind of an alarming, bizarre moment, and he gets to Peter, verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, you wash my feet. Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, well, oh, then wash my hands, my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. <laughs> Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray Him. That's what He meant when He said, "Not all of you are clean." I love how excited John gets as He's writing this. He just can't contain it. Let us figure it out. He just got to tell us. He's talking about Judas right there. <laughs> So everybody in this, in this room is probably stunned and paralyzed as Jesus is moving from person to person, washing their feet. But he gets to Peter and I can imagine Peter just pulling his feet up underneath them. So Jesus can't wash them. And we get that, right? I feel like that's exactly how I would have responded in that. That's what I love about Peter because he reacts and responds for all of us sinners. But anyway, so he's just like, no way, Jesus, this is not going to happen. This is not right. You should not be washing my feet. You got this backwards. It should be the other way around. But something deeper is, is, is being revealed in all of this. Jesus, interestingly, does not humor Peter in this moment at all. He actually shoots back with authority in his response. If I don't do this, you won't belong to me. You won't have a share. There's no inheritance in my kingdom, no proper relationship with me if I don't do this. So then all of a sudden we realize this is about something more than just what we're seeing on the surface here. This is more than just, you know, getting your dogs rinsed off or something. This becomes a picture of the cleansing redemption that accompanies this love of God towards us. And we learn here then that God's sacrificial love is our only source of redemption. God's love for us is the only means by which we're made right and whole as human beings. This this whole scene is interesting to me. John remember he's not random about the the details that he includes in his gospel. Everything is here with a purpose. It is meticulously pieced together here. And and Peter's resistance becomes a revelation for us. It's a, a reactionary pattern that that we see Jesus pushes back against. I get Peter's protest. I think I would have done the same thing had I been in his, well, lack of shoes. But but we see that there's a deeper problem being revealed in this. This is a scandalous grace in action, and it makes everyone uncomfortable in, in the process. We, we right away Start picking up our defenses and, 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 you know, this doesn't seem fair. This isn't, this isn't right. This is all backwards. You shouldn't do this. Jesus, I'll get myself clean. I'll take care of this myself. I'll work this out on my own. But Jesus doesn't allow a bit of space for that at all. No, he does the cleaning. All we can do is receive it. Jesus literally demands that we accept his act of sacrificial love, or we risk rejecting the whole thing. That is powerful stuff. Like, that's intense. That's something that we actually have to sit back and puzzle over for a minute. That's, that's That's pretty intense. We struggle with this idea of not being able to cleanse ourselves, to get our own act together because we spend our whole life trying to get our own act together. But I suspect it's really not born out of humility as much as it is pride and presumption on our part. Usually the problem that keeps us from wanting to accept this profound love from God is that we just can't control something like that. That's out of our element, out of our reach to be able to control it. And that's scary just as human beings that's a, that's a reality of how we're made that's a that's a scary thing to realize there is this love that i don't persuade or control or do anything i can't affect it one way or the other i can't sin enough to make it go away and i can't do enough good to make it more all i can do is is receive it but that's the whole thing God's grace is not something that we accept and then manage. It's something we accept and surrender to. That's is all there is. This is all. That's why Jesus is so intolerant then of Peter's response and his resistance. Regardless of what people think are good intentions, and and good reasons for trying to leave Jesus out of the cleansing process. This is my mess. I'll take care of it. We have to see that it's either Jesus does it at all or we're not cleansed. We can't do this on our own. That's ultimately the bottom line to that interchange between those two. We cannot do this on our own. And even after we're cleansed, we don't do this very well. (laughs) We'll get to that here. But I love Peter's response to Jesus' statement. You know? Jesus Jesus said, listen, Peter, either I wash you or, you know, you don't belong to me. And all of a sudden, Peter's got a loofah and a box of Mr. Bubble and says, let's go to town, Jesus. Head to toe. And I imagine Jesus probably laughed at that response and he qualifies something. You're clean. You don't need a whole bath, just your feet. What does that mean? Like that's a curious statement, for him to make. And everybody's going to have to puzzle that through. I'm not the answer man. I'm not here to explain everything to you. You're going to puzzle through it and pray about it. Here's how I look at it. I, I believe that by his teaching and through his relationship with his disciples and in forecasting his death for the human race, he lets them know that, that cleansing for the whole person has been accomplished, is being accomplished uh, for all of us through him. Our salvation is complete in Jesus. That doesn't change. But in our daily lives, our daily contact with this broken world, things get messy. We know that. I mean, we know that, right? <laughs> Who here doesn't struggle with getting weighed down by our failures throughout the week? We come here on a Sunday and everything's good. Yes, Jesus loves me. This is awesome. By the time we get back here the next Sunday, we're like, "Whoa! I sure hope he still loves me. It was a rough week. But isn't it a relief to realize then, if this is what Jesus is trying to say in this, that Jesus knows we're going to get messy and is prepared to continue the work of cleansing us from our daily walk through this fallen place? I I think that's a beautiful picture, if that's the one we're supposed to take from it. Our salvation is complete. We're right before God because of Jesus's sacrifice. We are a new human being in him. But Because we still trudge through this place, Jesus continually washes and cleanses us and sets us free to shape us into the wholeness He intended for us. I mean, honestly, that's the idea behind that big fancy word of sanctification. You know, that's what it means, is that reshaping, that ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And what it means is in real life is that He's going to be internally alerting us to certain actions or choices or thoughts or words that are out of sync with his character and what it is that he wants. He's going to be convicting us about those things, wanting to reshape our responses as we go. Because it matters to him that we don't just live in these broken, fallen and destructive patterns that we used to. He wants to lead us into that wholeness of life. See, it's not about moralism where you got to get your act together and stop that sinning or you're in trouble. It's about drawing what's best out of us because he made us to be so much more than what we've ever really known. It matters to him. But also it's a reminder, I think, in this section here that when we fall, when we mess up, when we do fall back into those old patterns and the enemy comes along and wants us to hide from God like he tried to get Adam and Eve to do in the very beginning. We just get this picture here of Jesus knowing that our feet are in the dirt. And he's waiting right there with a basin and a towel. Let's get this cleaned up. Let's, let's address this. Let's move on from here. I don't know. To me, it's that, that's one of those things, the first place we want to turn when we stumble and when we fall is to Jesus because he knows us, he's anticipated it and he's wanting to get things started anew because God is a God of new beginnings again and again and again and again and again. All right, well, finishing up this morning, let's read verses 12 to 17. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord And you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so so uh, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things... And I want you to put a bracket around the word God in this. God will bless you uh, for doing them. We'll get back to that in a minute here. That's where we're going to stop today. We've, we've learned what Jesus' motives are, his great love for humanity. We've seen that his love is redemptive, doesn't leave us in the same spot, but is working to make us whole. And now we see what his expectations are for us as the recipients of his love and salvic work. And Jesus is pretty straightforward about this. If you're going to call me, you know, the rabbi, the teacher, and Lord, your king, then, you know, I'm I'm the one you follow. And if you're going to claim that I'm your king, then you have to follow my example. Now, some institutions conclude from this that foot-washing ceremonies should be included as part of the sacraments like, you know, the Lord's Supper or... Communion or baptism or things like that. Uh, the crazy church that I was a part of included that in our thing, so I've had a lot of foot washing things. Uh, anyway, um, I'm not so sure that it's supposed to be included. Washing feet is a sort of a narrowly relevant. Event to a culture uh, that whose primary mode of travel was going to be on foot on unpaved roads and bathing was infrequent and this was an act of service that would have really been you know above and beyond what normally would be expected. But it was the act of service and the humble love. And we need to notice that in verse fifteen. Do I have it here? Yeah, I've given. You, he says, "I've given you an example to follow. Do." as I have done to you, not what I have done to you, as, kathos in the Greek, and that means in the same attitude and manner. So we could say in the same servanthood and humility, not necessarily replicating the same event. And and I so what I think we're learning from this is that sacrificial love is God's intended mean of advancing his kingdom. That when we're looking for God's values... God's goodness to advance, to move out in this world, the mode, the means by which it's going to happen isn't going to be different from the way Jesus did it, but it's going to be following his example of this sacrificial love and care. Uh, He's telling us that the the church, our mission in this world, is to convey, like he did, by our words and our actions, this same selfless love of God. The community that he formed, the church, is intended to manifest the love of God through serving one another or serving our fellow human being with no residue of pride, of position, or anything of the the sort. It's not about making demands on an unwilling world around us to conform to God's righteous standards. It's about us in the heart of a servant demonstrating God's great love for those who still don't know him and still disobey him. And the characteristics of this love are to be personal. That uncomfortable, in your space kind of personal love that Jesus demonstrated. So listen, as 21st century American Christians, this is a challenge. I mean, this really is. And you look at where our society is right now and how it's been developing over the last 20 to 30 years and the incredible amount of hubris and arrogance and name-calling and rage and outrage that permeates everything. I mean everything about our society. We're confronted with this? Whew. I mean, you talk about upside down, but remember, remember who the ones that are upside down are. As 21st century Americans, man, we're great at maybe changing our Facebook picture to advance a cause, you know, or we could text a hugging heart to somebody that's, you know, but we're not so great at rolling up our sleeves and and getting into somebody's life or sitting at the kitchen table with someone and not judging them and not telling them how they've done everything wrong that led them to this point. But instead demonstrate that careful, humble, invasive love that Jesus showed. See, the, the huggy heart, I mean, that's pretty easily controlled, right? We can control that. Somebody sends me a huggy heart, yeah, that's nice, and then I can push it aside and forget about it. But a love that, that shows up, says, I'm here to help. What, what do you need? What can I do? That's a different thing. And listen, honestly, listen, I'm talking to me. I'm not, you guys can figure your own life out, but I'm, I'm, I am not somehow above this, what I'm talking about here. It's a challenge for me. I'm part of this rapidly isolating culture as well. And as a, an, an extreme introvert, it suits me well <laughs> to, to, to cloister and hide in all of this. So the question that I have to ponder, and maybe you as well, is how can we as the church As the individuals who make up the church, how can we do as Jesus did? Express this selfless, humble, and relational love into the world where God has placed me. How can we do it? I would suspect that it's largely going to be made up of acts of love that go unnoticed. That that don't often get a lot of fanfare. And it may seem like menial stuff to do may not feel like a big big ministry opportunity to, to, I don't know, mow the neighbor's yard or something. And it may even get messy along the way. Maybe our motives get misunderstood or, or whatever. Maybe we're not treated with the kind of love we're being shown. It certainly happened in Jesus' case. But is that beneath us? Is there something beneath us in all of this? After we've looked at what Jesus did, what's beneath us as Christians? I'm not going to do that. I'm a follower of Jesus. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You know, sometimes after communion, I'll grab a a wastebasket or, you know, run around trying to clean things up and people have stopped me to, you know, say, here, I'll take that. And, and I appreciate if it's from a heart saying, hey, I want to get on on this service too. I want to be able to do this. But I have heard people say, and this is not trying to be corrective, but it's just trying to be corrective, that, <laughs> that I have had people say, oh, pastor, don't do that. You shouldn't be doing this. I'll take that. Guys, that's not it. That's there there is nothing beneath me here. I will do any of it to serve you. It's what we're called to do. That's where we're all supposed to be. There is nothing that should be menial to a minister of Jesus after we've seen how Jesus treats those that he serves, right? So, uh so now On the other side of this, if you're beginning to stress, thinking, okay, great, now I got more obligations I gotta go do so that God will like me. I gotta go take talk to my neighbor who's sick. Listen, that is not the point. That's not what we're trying to say. We're talking about being drawn into that wholeness in life. And this is all part and parcel with this. Because seriously, verse 17, he says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Now the NLT that we were reading there inserts the pronoun God will bless you if you do them. It is not in the original text. It was a terrible insertion because it actually changes the theology of the whole statement. Uh, uh, What the verse is trying to communicate is that if you discover this way of life, of selflessly living to show God's love, you'll experience makarios, that Greek word for the blessed life, the good life, the life that Jesus is inviting us into uh, that's blessed and whole and contented in this. This isn't an obligation laid on us by Christ. This was an invitation to live to be like him, to live in that same kind of existence that he lived in, who, with a looming death in front of him, still was living from this place of love and contentment, to become so fully alive and more fully human, to return to our status as image bearers of God. That's what he's inviting us into. Not an obligation, get your act together, start being nice and loving people. Or you're out. It's not that. It's here's the kind of life you could live. What you've been looking for. Oh, what you've been scrabbling around this broken earth, rummaging through the rubble, trying to find. It's right here, Jesus says, in serving and loving your fellow human being. That's where we're going to discover him. That's where we're going to find Jesus. Lurking in the shadows, bringing life and light to those who will receive it. That's the kind of life I want. So let's take up this invitation. Let's find our identity in God's deep love for us. Let's rest in his work of saving us. And from that place, let's advance this same love in the world wherever we've been placed. Always becoming more alive in the process. Right on? All right. Very cool. If if you're able, will you stand with me, please? Father, we just thank you so much for your word we thank you for this great love that you've shown to us father i pray we never get over it if we've discovered that if we've encountered that if we've become more aware of this amazing love that you've revealed to us i pray we never get over it let it shape us from this point forward And Father, if we haven't experienced that, if we're reading words on a page but we're not sure how to connect it, then I ask that. You, by your Spirit, reveal your love for the human race. Reveal your love for everyone here in tangible ways. Make it known to us, Father. We are complete. We are secure. We are whole in life because you love us. Regardless of what happens around us, we are secure in your love. Lead us forward and upward and onward into that, I pray, my Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.